Hey, before we get started, did you know that you can get continuing education for this podcast? Just head over to academy.flightcrit.com to find out more information. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to this episode of the Flight Crit Podcast, your place for pre-hospital emergency and critical care transport education. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by my co-host Hunter as we discuss the concepts of oxygenation, ventilation, and driving pressures in a mechanically ventilated patient. So with that, let's get on with the podcast. All right. So let's get rolling here. Um, oxygenation, ventilation, driving pressures. Um, this is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. When I say driving pressures, really what we're doing is we're just kind of talking about lung protective strategy and introducing driving pressures. It's, um, I mean, most people have heard about ARDSNET protocol and low tidal volume ventilation to protect the lungs. This concept of driving pressures or keeping the driving pressure low uh, to protect the lungs is... Um, is kind of a hot topic right now. So we're going to ch- chat a little bit about it. And then next week when we have the uh, the, re- uh, the respiratory coach on, um, we're going to really hit that hard, talk about compliance, um, static and dynamic and so on and so forth. But without further ado, let's do this. All right. So basically what we're going to talk about real quick um, is a little bit of anatomy and physiology. And um, oh, before I forget, Stick around to the end of the broadcast because we're going to throw up that QR code for you guys to get your free one hour of continuing education. So stick around to the end. You'll catch that QR code. All right. So respirations, ventilations, oxygenation, right? Three very different concepts. We need to understand all three of them um, so that we uh, you know, are, can provide the best care to our patients, right? So respirations, nothing more than the mechanical movement of air in and out of the lungs. Ventilation is that transfer of CO2 from blood out of the lungs or out of the body, and then oxygenation, taking oxygen in and then delivering it to our blood and then to our tissue. So those are the kind of the concepts we're going to be chatting about today. The big deal is, is this is just all about our gas exchange, right? And so in order to understand this concept of gas exchange, we need to have a fundamental uh, understanding of what it is that moves gas in and out of the blood and the alveoli, right? So basically, just to kind of break it down very simply, right? I, you know, the atmospheric pressure at sea level, and we will use this as just like a benchmark, is 760 torr. Right? 21% of that is oxygen, so you multiply 760 by 21, you get about 160 lose some of that um, um, oxygen pressure as the oxygen moves through the nose down into the alveoli and it's affected by water vapor pressure. So by the time the um, oxygen gets into the alveoli, the pressure, the partial pressure of oxygen within the alveoli is about 100, uh, 100, um, 100 torr. Okay? When you compare that to the partial pressure of oxygen within the um, the uh, the arterioles are right at that alveolar capillary membrane. Um, there's a pressure of about 30 to 40, right? So it sets up this pressure gradient where the oxygen that is here within the alveoli wants to move into uh, across that alveolar capillary membrane and diffuse into the blood uh, to be picked up. And the similar same type of situation occurs with venous, right? The percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is about 0.04%, right? You could do the math. It's a very low um, partial pressure of CO2 within the atmosphere. Um, and likewise, then when that gets down into our alveoli, that partial pressure is very low. Our bodies produce carbon dioxide as a byproduct that gets uh, transported to the alveoli, where then it is, uh, I'm sorry, to the, well, to the alveolar capillary membrane where it then diffuses very rapidly into the alveoli for ventilation, right? So that's just the down and dirty. We talked about oxygenation and ventilation there and how those two functions work. There's a lot that can go on, go wrong, and there's also a lot that we can do to manipulate both of those in our patient whom, are we, whom we are assisting, whether it's intubated or non-invasive. Anything to add to that, Hunter, before we move on? Nothing. No. Cool. All right. So 
Before we can actually start treating our patients, we need to understand what kind of problem they're having, right? There's two types of respiratory failure. There's a type one respiratory failure, which is failure to oxygenate, and there's a type two respiratory failure, which is failure to ventilate. That's all I was gonna share you know, with this slide is just that you need to be able to recognize which type of respiratory failure our patient is suffering from, and we can do that by looking at the gases, or for the most part, we're really going to just have a general idea when we look at them initially until we really start getting, you know, more deep into the, the, the pathology, the pathophysiology of their disease process. So, again, just a real quick overview, oxygenation versus ventilation, right? We manipulate either of these, um, you know, in different ways. So primarily when we talk about oxygenation, we're talking about manipulating um, their PEEP and their FiO2. And when we talk about um, ventilation or the manipulation of their CO2, we're talking about um, manipulating their tidal volume and their respiratory rate. And the goal here is to, to address their minute ventilation. Right? Yeah. Hunter, want to add? No, I think that? so. Uh, going through the two concepts, I think uh, starting with ventilation, um, I think ventilation is a little bit harder of a concept to grasp, and we're about to dive into that versus oxygenation. We'll talk about the two differences, but yeah, no, I totally agree. Cool. Well, why don't you go ahead and um, talk about ventilation, right, and how it is that we, we, we manipulate these and what our goal is and how we actually address this when we are when we're setting our patient up on the ventilator and really trying to you know manipulate their ventilate the ventilation side of, of this yeah equation. so ventilation guys is a component of a few things we have our ventilatory rate or respiratory rate we have the volume going in and out of our patient which is our tidal volume and then we have our minute uh, volume um, i think the most important concept is that minute ventilation or minute volume that encompasses both the respiratory rate and the tidal volume. So if you remember a uh, normal uh, minute volume or minute ventilation for a patient is about five to eight liters. We get that by multiplying our rate by our tidal volume. We'll go into rate and tidal volume here in a second. Uh, but that is a, a thing you want to assess on your patient and know what minute ventilation you want to achieve in order to set a correct ventilatory rate and tidal volume. Um, there are instances that you want a higher minute ventilation um, for certain disease processes if you're dealing with a metabolic issue um, and stuff like that. The minute ventilation also, um, a, little, these, a lot of these things I just tell you are kind of personal things that I do that are helpful. So if you do 100 times the patient's ideal body weight, um, you'll get a number in uh, milliliters. Uh, so if you're 80 kilos times 100, that's 8,000 milliliters. And that's what we're shooting for a minute ventilation. If we divide that by our tidal volume, we'll get our expected rate. Um, so if you're ever just like, I don't know where to start on a rate, if you do that equation you get your minute ventilation, you divide by that tidal volume, you can get an expected rate. Um, so if, uh, do you want to, we can just go to the next slide and kind of talk about, um, start going into yeah. ventilation. So, totally. so tidal volume is six to eight cc's per kg based on ideal body weight. Now the book would tell you is this equation, it's 50 plus 2.3 inches or times inches minus 60 for men and then 45 plus 2.3 times inches minus 60. So what I want you to do next time you have a patient is run both those equations and see how minuscule of a difference it is. Um, I mean, we're talking, and I'm talking adults here, not pediatrics, but if you're doing ideal body weight on these adults and you see how small of a difference it is in the actual tidal volume, it's nothing. So what I do is I kind of just go with the 50 because it's a nice even number. I drop the 0.3. So I do 50 plus two times inches over five foot, okay? So I can do that pretty quick in my head. So if you're a five, um, two, so that would be two times two is four plus 50 is 54. And that number times six or eight. Um, so I tell people that you can also round down or round up. I don't think, 
Again, if you do this math next time with a patient, you'll see how little of a difference in tidal volume it is. So if my ideal body weight was 54 kilos, I would just call it 50 because I know six times five is 300. So I know at 60 cc's per, I'm looking at about 300. I always tell people to try and calculate in your mind what your upper limit of tidal volume is and what your lower limit of tidal volume is going to be on a patient that you're going to see. That way, if you get into an ARDS criteria, you're getting into a patient that's difficult to ventilate, difficult to oxygenate, you know your range and where you want to be. So you can come down on that tidal volume. So if you calculate your four to eight, if you want to go that low, then you know your range. You know as low you can go and as high as you should be able to go with that patient. But again, I do that 50 plus two times inches over five foot. And I just round down or round up. You know, we do the same thing sometimes in medicine. So I do do the rounding with that. And it seems to help out um, a lot in my eyes. Um, so, yeah, totally, totally agree with that. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Right. Because remember, this is a this is a starting point, right? I mean, just, you know, we're, we're half the time we're, we're estimating our patient's right. height anyways. And so we're going to be kind of in the ballpark, if you will. So I think that's great. You know, it makes it really easy rather than having to to kind of pull out your calculator or, or whatever. Right. You do so quick. keep that in range with having uh, – keep that in mind with having the range of your tidal volume so you know your max and you know your minimum and then you know how to get your minute ventilation. And I want to restate that minute ventilation is the number we are – caring about. That is how we get CO2 off of the body. That is how we ventilate our patient and we help with oxygenation. So that minute ventilation number that you calculate in your head, you want to know what it should be for your patient size. And then you can calculate um, how much tidal volume you'll need and such. Uh, as far as the rate, we'll talk to I we'll talk about IDE ratios here in a little bit. Um, but again, I gave you that little tidbit on how to calculate calculate that rate. If you know your respiratory rate times your tidal volume equals minute ventilation, if you divide minute ventilation by tidal volume, you therefore get your rate. There are times that you want to decrease or increase that rate. Uh, you know, we're talking about our obstructive patients and our patients that we're trying to blow off CO2, whatever that might be. Um, but I just think it's a nice little way if you're just, you know, some people are just sitting there like, where do I start the rate? And I just kind of give them that little tidbit. So. No, I think that that's great, right? Because we've got, you know, we've got charts to figure out where we start with our tidal volume. You know, we kind of apply that as well um, if we're pressure ventilating, right. sort of. But yeah, you know, there's, you know, we kind of always say we're going to start somewhere around five to eight on the peep. Um, but I feel like often we just kind of throw a number out there, you know, when it comes to respiratory rate. You know, maybe we look at what their intrinsic right. respiratory rate is. But I think that's that's a really good point. So basic, so just to kind of recap real quick, you said. 100 mLs times their ideal body weight gets their minute ventilation. And then you divide that. Um, you divide that. I'm You're sorry. right. That gives you 100 times their ideal body weight gives you yeah. their minute ventilation. And then you divide that by your tidal volume to get a, a predicted um, right. starting Right, yeah. If you just take that equation, your rate times the tidal volume equals minute ventilation, relatively 100 per um, and again, this is just personal opinion, but 100 per, if you divide that minute ventilation calculated by your tidal volume, yeah, you'll get a relative starting rate and vice versa. If you do that okay. divided by the rate, you'll get your tidal volume. So, but at least you can right. calculate yeah. the tidal volume Perfect. yourself. Um, you know, so. Yeah, because uh, this formula here, the 50 plus 2.3 2, 2 times height and inches minus 60, like it just seems so <laughs> unnecessary, especially the throwing in the minus 60 part, right? I mean, that's five feet. Why? Yeah, and then just, the pounds you know, is even, I think, more difficult for males. It's 106 plus 6 for every inch over five feet, if I remember. And females is 100 plus 5 for inches over five feet. So they're both just, I don't know, they're both just difficult, I think. and. I just round, I mean, like I said, this is adults only, but if you, I just started doing the math one day and I rounded from 52 to 50 and times that by six. And I was like, oh, I mean, we're talking like 40 cc's, you know? So. Right. Yep. 
Yeah, you know, it, same goes for like uh, titrating your oxygen, you know, up and down for uh, atmospheric you know, pressure changes. Right? There's a whole formula for that, but I always say just yeah. turn it up a little right, bit. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because it changes so <laughs> minuscule. Yeah, cool. All right, here we go. So, talked a little, this was just more kind of sure. looking at dead space um, and, you know, volumes. Um, and, and so, I don't know. Do you want me to? You want me to talk a little bit about this, or we're going to come back to this one? Um, space ventilation. We can go. We can talk a little bit about this one. Basically, what we were just trying to show here is that um, you know we'll come to it again when we talk about dead space, um, which is coming up in the next section. Um, but keep in mind, like your dead space ventilation, your your physiologic dead space. You know, um, for the most part, it doesn't change, right? there's, you know, you got your alveolar dead space, you've got your anatomical dead space, but then when you start adding in, um, you know, your ET tube, your vent tubing, your HMEs, your bacterial filters, your uh, end tidal CO2, um, you know, uh, inline connectors, your ballards, all that stuff, that all adds to your dead space. And your dead space doesn't change, right? So, the you know, the idea, like, like Connor was just talking about, is that you know, your your tidal volume is your respiratory rate. Um, uh, I'm sorry, your minute ventilation is your respiratory rate times your tidal volume. And you know, if we're going to come down or up with one of them, then it's kind of like that seesaw effect, right? Because you, you your minute ventilation generally should be the same. So if you're trying to keep your minute ventilation the same and you come up with your tidal volume or, or down with your tidal volume up with your rate, you know, that's going to keep you in balance. But remember. If you are increasing your rate, that dead space ventilation is still the same. So the dead space ventilation ratio eventually gets to a point where it actually has a significant impact on your patient's ability to ventilate. Eventually, you reach a point where you're just simply moving air in and out of a dead space. You're not actually providing alveolar ventilation. And if you do this formula, you know, in this particular example here, right, where this is a tidal volume of 600. 150 of it is dead space, 450 of it is actually reaching the alveoli at a rate of, call it, you know, five. But if you were to do this same math, um, figure out whatever your minute ventilation is, um, and then multiply that rate out, say it's 30 or 40, keeping the same dead space, you would see that your actual alveolar ventilation volume drops precipitously. Right. Oh. Right. All right, buddy. And so, um, getting into dead space, you know, and, and the whole purpose of you know what we were just talking about with doing these calculations to determine um, what the proper ventilatory uh, volume is, or your your uh, tidal volume, and using that ideal body weight. I'm sure many of you have already seen this. Is it's because we don't want to be using the patient's true body weight because as this picture describes or illustrates, the size of the lungs doesn't change based on the patient's um, true body weight or actual body weight. So that's why we use the ideal body weight, which is based on their height. That is the whole purpose of, of illustrating this. So keep that in mind. I do. Yeah, so dead space. Dead space. Um, I feel like we all like talk about it, but it's nice just to really understand it. So dead space is comprised of physiologic dead space which is actually both anatomical and alveolar dead space so everyone in this world has a degree of anatomical dead space now not everyone has alveolar alveolar dead space and i'll explain how that works so the average person has about one cc per ideal body weight based on pounds of dead space uh, and remember, anatomical dead space is the areas of the respiratory system that is moving air, but it's not participating in gas exchange. So that's like our pharynx, our trachea, our larynx into the main uh, bronchi, even into the, like the terminal bronchioles. So there's no gas exchange occurring. It's just a way to move the air. So starting out with anatomical dead space, one cc per pound of ideal body weight is the amount that is not participating in gas exchange. Another good way to do it is you can just say 30% of your tidal volume relatively is not going to participate in gas exchange. So for instance, if your tidal volume is set to 500, 
and uh, your patient is going to be a hundred or a hundred pounds, I guess you could say, then a hundred of that is not participating in gastric chain, so it's anatomical bed space. So 500 minus 100 is only 400 of that tidal volume is going to participate in gas exchange. Now, normal anatomical dead space should be about 20 to 40% when you look at the ratio of your dead space with your tidal volume. When you divide those two out, that should be about 20 to 40%. When that becomes more than 40%, then we get into an alveolar dead space. So again, everyone has anatomical dead space. Alveolar dead space now is where we get into patients with VQ mismatch, which we will cover. So those VQ mismatches are those areas of those alveoli that are not being ventilated or not being perfused. So they're not participating well in that gas exchange. So again, that physiologic dead space is going to be both anatomical and alveolar dead space. Everyone has the anatomical dead space, which is one cc per pound of ideal body weight, that alveolar dead space does not come into effect until you have a hypoxic issue. And we'll talk about VQ mismatch being one of the most common causes of, of um, hypoxemia, not hypoxic, hypoxemia. Um, so if you have the run-of-the-mill uh, overdose patient that's intubated for airway protection or a head injury uh, with no injury to the thorax or any chest wall injuries or anything like that, you can almost assume that your physiologic dead space is your anatomical dead space because there's no alveolar issues. Now, if this patient starts to have issues with oxygenation and ventilation and they start to have hypoxemia, you can assume there is alveolar dead space as well. So those are the two big ones that we remember. And if you just remember one per your body weight uh, in pounds with ideal or relatively 30% uh, of your calculated tidal volume, if you divide those two, you like that around the 20 to 40%. When that starts to become more, you're asking yourself, where is that volume going? And you're worried about alveolar dead space at that point. Um, and then, uh, like uh, we were talking about, there's also uh, mechanical dead space. So patients that are non, uh, we have positive pressure ventilation, we're losing that in the tube, we're losing that in attachments um, and other things like that. So we have that anatomical, we have the alveolar dead space with our sicker patients. And then we also have the mechanical uh, dead space, which is based on the um, I guess, I don't know, Sean, it's based on the actual, well, you brought it up here. It's based on what we're using. So as you can see on the screen, how much volume you're losing in these certain things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's shocking when you actually start like just taking a syringe and start filling these devices with water and you see how much volume they actually will take. Right. Um, you, you see that, 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 uh, that mechanical dead space. Right. Up really yep. quick. And, uh, and obviously, guys, this becomes a huge issue with kids when we're putting a lot of attachments on there and stuff. And we're talking about volume currently, just FYI. But yeah, that becomes an issue if you're ventilating someone and they look like they're having signs of hypoventilation, whether that's a PaCO2, you're getting a venous blood gas, um, or if you're trending your entitles, um, then this becomes an issue of dead space. And you have to ask yourself, is this a VQ mismatch um, or some other portion of dead space? So. Like that, nice. Sean? You got anything on that, cool, my man. friend? That's super easy. No, I, that was that was pretty solid, right? Of course, you know when we, like you said, when we start seeing a patient who's not responding the way we right. expect, they're not off gassing, they're not oxygenating, right? right? We got to think what's going on, and oftentimes it's it's a problem with dead space ventilation or shunt, which. You know, kind of creates uh, dead spaces. Sure. Realm. Right. Yeah, I agree. Right on. Um, sweet. That was ventilation. So let's talk a little bit now about oxygenation. And and obviously, we all know that these topics they blend together, right? Just because we we're we're now moving on to oxygenation, right? Everything right. works together, right? So, um, you know, let's talk about oxygenation. Right. So oxygenation is primarily affected by PEEP and FiO2, right? And we can manipulate mean airway pressures as well to improve oxygenation. But there's all kinds of gas, uh, you know, there's all these gas laws out there. Um, Dalton's law is one, um, um, Graham's law is one um, that people will often refer to when they're talking about um, 
um, oxygen diffusion, right? And it has to do with um, pressures. But very little people talk about fixed law. And I think fixed law personally is the most important law that we need to understand um, because it it is kind of the essence of what we are manipulating when we talk about increasing FIO and FIO2 and PEEP in these patients, right? Um, so let's go ahead and break this down for a minute. So fixed law is the diffusion rate of gas across a membrane, right? And basically what all this is saying is that as the membrane is stretched, right, the rate of um, oxygen diffusion is proportional to the difference in partial pressures, right? So as we add more people, we're increasing the part, we're increasing the pressure within the alveoli. We're also increasing the partial pressure of oxygen when we increase FiO2. Right? It's proportional to the area of the membrane, right? So if we now take a an alveoli and we stretch it and we hold it open with PEEP, we are enlarging the membrane surface area. And then it is inversely proportional to the thickness of the membrane, right? So as I demonstrate in this picture here, when this balloon inflates, we actually get an increase in surface area as well as the, the wall of that balloon thins out. And if you've ever taken a balloon and you've blown it up as, as big as you possibly can before it breaks, you'll notice that that membrane gets really thin, right? So when that membrane is thin, the oxygen can move across it much quicker. We have more surface area for oxygen to, you know, um, kind of uh, pass through, right? Because oxygen has got to move through that very thin membrane. And then by adding the FiO2, we're increasing the partial pressure of oxygen. And so when you think about it this way, it makes sense why increasing PEEP and, and increasing FiO2 has the most direct effect on improving a patient's oxygenation, assuming that we don't have, you know, like a shunt or a dead space ventilation situation, right? Likewise, if we talk about mean airway pressures, right? Mean airway pressure is what is the pressure over the entire respiratory cycle, right? And we know that the inspiratory pressure, if you think about BiPAP for a minute, the inspiratory pressure is always higher than the expiratory pressure. So if we prolong the inspiratory um, phase, we basically, you know, make it so that the patient, the airway pressures, the pressure in the alveoli are higher for a longer period of time. Those alveoli are not only you know, held open by PEEP, but they're also expanded longer during the inhalation phase so we get more oxygen diffusion. There's more time for that oxygen to diffuse across that alveolar capillary membrane. So when you think about it that way, it makes a lot of sense why um, improving PEEP and improving uh, eye time uh, improves oxygenation. And likewise, there's some effect on ventilation as well. You know, if we're holding those alveoli open, the CO2 can diffuse across that membrane um, faster. And again, there's a you know, larger surface area. Just because we apply this to the concept of oxygenation, right? Fixed law doesn't just say this applies to oxygen. It applies to all gases. And so CO2 can, uh, can diffuse across that membrane faster. Also, there's more surface, surface area as well. So... Um, and likewise, if we are um, hyperoxygenating the alveoli, think about what we do when we are um, preparing a patient for RSI, right? We do that big nitrogen and CO2 washout. We give them plenty of oxygen, 100%. We flush out uh, all gas from those alveoli uh, except for oxygen. We're setting up a really pronounced um, uh, partial pressure gradient. So all that CO2 can flush out of their, their system and all that oxygen can flush into their blood um, and, and really hyperoxygenating them and bringing that CO2 down. Right. So note about the map, right? If hypoxemia persists uh, despite optimized FiO2 and PEEP, consider increasing the map. And that's just what we talked about. Right. So eye times. Right. You want to talk a little bit about this, Hunter, or you want me to, to yeah, sure. start I can with talk this? a little about it? So um so with eye time, guys, uh, remember that your IDE ratio is going to be based off your predicted 
uh, or calculated eye time and your respiratory rate. Um, the manipulation of your uh, eye time and your IVE ratio um, is going to, for one, when you look at uh, fixed law, but you also look at mean airway pressure. If you ever look at the equation, um, obviously it has a lot to do with your PIP and your PEEP, but it also has to do a lot with your total time and your total eye time. Um, so prolonging those eye times a little bit and dragging those out, what it does, um, next time you have a ventilator, put it on a pressure mode and watch it set its pressure. And the longer you hold that pressure, you're giving more time for diffusion of that oxygen. So that's why it's very helpful when we're trying to target a mean airway pressure. If we want a set mean airway pressure, we might want to set that mean airway pressure to a longer time. That way, we're getting maximal diffusion because we're keeping those alveoli for that time. And you'll see that pressure set and it will hold. And as it's held, it allows for that diffusion of that oxygen and that CO2. So uh, manipulation of our eye time or IDE, remember that is our respiratory rate and our eye time, definitely has great effects with oxygenation and mean airway pressures, but it also has good effects with ventilation as well. Excuse me. So with our COPD patients or patients that we want to prolong e-time, we might have to drop our respiratory rate to give a longer time total for that respiratory cycle, including both I-time and E-time. So remember that when you have a higher rate, uh, the respiratory rate is divided into 60 over a minute. So that will give you your total time for a breast cycle. And from there, you can buy yourself some time with I to E uh, ratio. And if you calculate that in the seconds, this is kind of, I guess, more advanced. But if you calculate in seconds, you can see how long you're in your I time versus your E time. Um, but again, I don't know what you think, Sean, but there's not huge manipulation with I to E unless you're getting into your ARVS patients and we're talking about the airway pressure and you want to prolong that diffusion state. Um, and or on the contrary, that would be a higher I time, lower E time. On the contrary, with our obstructive patients or patients that we're trying to help exhale, um, offload that air, we would do an opposite. We'd do like a longer E time shorter, I time. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, I would say like, you know, most of the time my my I times are somewhere around 0. 0.9, 0. Sure. 0.8 to 1, um, you know, 1.1, 1.2. It's just kind of whatever seems to be most comfortable for the patient. I usually start around 0. 0.9, maybe 1. Um, but yeah, unless I'm trying to manipulate their gas exchange, um, I don't, I don't mess with it uh, sure. too much. Cool. All right. There you go, buddy. So dead space ventilation versus. So shunt, VQ mismatch. Right? The VQ mismatch. <laughs> we were kind of talking about earlier and we had to hold back there a little bit, but so VQ mismatch, I think it's something we always say. And we're like, Oh, they have a VQ mismatch, but I, I feel like I didn't really understand it a whole lot until I got into critical care and, um, stuff like that. So the ventilation perfusion mismatch, um, you have a high and a low ventilation perfusion mismatch. So a high ventilation perfusion mismatch would be the degree that you're ventilating this patient, but you're not um, perfusing them well. So we can get the air in, we can try and get the oxygen to where it needs to go, but we cannot get it into the blood system itself. And why we say it's a high VQ mismatch is because um, it's a number over a number. So if your ventilation number is good and your perfusion uh, number is low, then that means it's a high ventilation mismatch, a high number divided by a low number. So the high ventilation uh, perfusion mismatch hypoxic patients, and I want to reiterate that VQ mismatches is a pretty high percentage of reason that people have hypoxemia. So when you have patients that are innovated for respiratory issues to a degree of hypoxemia, you have usually have somewhere a VQ mismatch, whether that's on the ventilation or the perfusion side. Um, so a high VQ mismatch with a patient that has hypoxemia, if you put them on oxygen and increase that partial pressure of oxygen, they'll usually get better. Um, and I say usually. Now on a low ventilator ventilation to perfusion mismatch, where we're not ventilating um, and we're not perfusing as well there. So that would be like pulmonary embolism, pulmonary hypertension, 
uh, shunting, stuff like that. So low VQ mismatch would be our shunt. We're shunting away from that dead space, and we're trying to hyperfuse areas of the lungs that are participating in gas exchange. Now, those low VQ mismatch, usually a good indicator of them is you put oxygen on this patient, and their um, SpO2 uh, is not rising. They still have a degree of hypoxemia. Um, so that would like pulmonary embolism and stuff like that. Those patients uh, might need to be on a uh, medication to dilate the pulmonary vessels to try and increase that flow to those areas that are not being perfused. They're being ventilated, but they're not being perfused. And then the lung will just stop perfusing that area, shunt away, say, I'm not even going to try it and go to areas that it can hyperperfuse. So those low VQ mismatches, um, good indicator of that is putting them on oxygen, innovating them. You're still going to have issues usually with oxygenation, ventilation, stuff like that. Uh, they usually need some degree of a medication to fix that perfusion issue that's going on in there. Whereas our ventilation people, pneumonia, stuff like that, the blood's still flowing in that area. So if I can just increase the partial pressure of oxygen and I can just give more molecules of oxygen, hopefully I can go across that gradient. Or like we talked with our fix law, we can go ahead and give Pete, try and pop that open and get it into there. If you're not perfusing that area, like you can see with our dead space and the, the, the X over the arrow, um, we might be getting oxygen, but if we're not perfusing that area, it's never going to go into circulation. Um, so just something you'll want to watch for VQ mismatch. Like I said, a lot of your hypoxemic patients, your patients, sorry, suffering from hypoxemia are going to have a degree of mismatch, whether that's on the perfusion or the ventilation side. Again, this is where our LVOR dead space comes in. Remember physiologic dead space means anatomical and LVOR dead space. Um, your LVOR dead space now is going to come from a VQ mismatch. Yeah. Right, yeah, and I brought up this slide, right, just to kind of illustrate that point that you were talking about, that hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, right? So when, when the lung becomes hypoxic, like you said, the, the vessels, the, the lungs are smart. They try to shunt blood to the areas of the lungs that are, um, you know, being oxygenated. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, um, there's a really awesome lecture um, by Dr. Kreger um, where she talks about, um, uh, pulmonary embolisms and she talks about the use of nitro, nebulized nitro, uh, to actually, uh, produce, uh, pulmonary vaso, yeah. uh, vasodilation, um, you know, as opposed to all those really expensive, right? we're not, yeah. don't do that, right? <laughs> we're not, we're not saying to go do that, but, but there are some intensivists who, you know, doctors, we're not yeah. doctors, <laughs> but, um, who, who have, who have tried that and they've had a pretty, pretty good result. So kind of an interesting concept, right? You know, if you've got that crashing patient. Um, and we are uh, scratching uh, the surface right now. I feel like we could just get going into this, but yeah, I, I think that's the basis of VQ mismatch guys. Just kind of remembering hypoxemia usually coming from a degree of VQ mismatch. So yeah, I'm really to what Sean said there. Right. Cool. Um, all right, PaO2, FiO2 ratio, right? You want to Yeah, I mean, I feel like we both, we, we were just chatting about it actually today. And, you know, kind of uh, PDF ratio is definitely something that we see a lot in the ICU. Uh, the degree to get ABGs pretty frequently on these patients, we can do them in the transport world as well. Um, but it's that PaO2 to your FiO2 ratio. Um, obviously, we have the 300, 200, and less than 150. It's our degree of ARDS, mild, moderate, and severe. Um, I think that the interesting thing with P to F ratios that I always like to point out is if you have the exact same patient A and B um, on the exact same amount of FiO2, right? They have the same disease process, same amount of FiO2, but one has a worse P to F ratio than the other, you're asking yourself kind of how does that work? And I think that's where our implementation of uh, our fixed law and our PEEP is so big. I mean, how can someone have a worse PDF ratio if they're the exact same patient on the exact same amount of FIL2? Well, the, the answer to that is you're using your fixed law and you're using your mean airway pressures. Um, you're manipulating that system in order to increase that gradient and diffusion of oxygen so that patient's PAL2 is actually better. Um, so just something we kind of, me and Sean want to reiterate, how you can have that exact same patient that you're just increasing the partial pressure of oxygen. That's fine. You're increasing it above that 21%, but to, in order to fuse it better, 
um, always going back to that mean airway pressure and that fixed law and a couple other things we're going to chat about. Yeah, totally. Like, uh, you know, one of the examples I, I always like to, to say, I, I had this um, patient one time, I went into the ER and went to go pick him up and we were talking about possibly intubating him and the, the um, intensivist who had actually come down um, was like, no, there's no reason to intubate him. The patient's um, PO2 was like 98. And I said, okay, yeah, that's, that sounds great, except the patient's on a non-revealer mask sucking sure. the bag flat. So, you know, they're almost on 100% FIO2, right? And so that, that you know, PO2 or PDF ratio is like 98, right? Sure. If you say, you know, the PO2 is 98 and they're almost on 100%. Right, so ninety-eight divided by one—that's a PAO two uh, FIO two ratio of like ninety-eight, which is severe right. ARDS. Right, and when I was learning this concept, it was like, help me understand this, right? So PAO two, normal PAO two, let's just say hundred for you know for making things easy, and normal uh, FIO two is twenty-one percent, right? So in those cases, your PDF ratio is somewhere in the the ballpark of you know, four to 500, right? That's normal, right? So now you take that patient with the same PAO2 and, you know, but you give them a su supplemental oxygen, that ratio starts to change, right? Likewise, we've all seen this, right? That patient who's ahead and they're intubated and they're put on 100% FIO2. You pull, you pull a gas on them and their PAO2 is 400. Right? Jesus, <laughs> you know, they're, they're hyper, you know, they don't, they're hyperoxy, oxygen. Yeah, they don't need right. that. Right. So that to me kind of illustrated the point when I looked at it and I thought, okay, PAO2 is usually 80 to 100. Normal FIO2 is 21. Do the math under normal, you know, conditions without supplemental oxygen, you know, their PDF is going to be somewhere around 400. So when that ratio starts ticking down, there's a reason why their PAO2, their, 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 the oxygen is not diffusing right. into lungs. Right. And that sets up that, that PDF ratio, which is indication of lung disease. Right. Cool. Good, good, good stuff. Um, all right. Management, low tidal volume. Um, I mean, I feel like we kind of touched on this already, you know, but um, yeah, I, hit that? I, you know, we have such a different audience here, guys. So again, this is our introductory um, with, with uh, ARDS management. Um, if you haven't heard this already, you know, we're dropping our, our tidal volume. We can sacrifice CO2 for oxygenation. Um, you know, it's not abnormal to have a lower um, uh, tidal volume for these patients and to stack their CO2s in order to increase that gradient of oxygen into the alveoli to oxygenate them well. So dropping our... Um, Tidal volume is very normal. We're not going to get into vent modes yet today, but we will. Um, but this is kind of where we start uh, yep. uh, switching over to our pressure. Um, and we talk about PEEP here uh, quite a bit. And um, the low tidal volume ventilation is kind of what we're getting at with these ARDS. Uh, we're okay with riding their CO2s a little bit higher. Again, we're going to sacrifice that CO2 for our um, oxygenation and you're going to see that happens because you're going to try and increase your eye time well more uh, time spent in the inspiratory phase less on the expiratory phase you're stacking co2 to be able to do that sometimes you're going down on your rate and stuff like that so um and these patients uh you know you start getting really into sick patients you're going up on their rate you tend to auto peep them whole lot of thing going on we're just kind of touching the surface of ARDS right now and I guess kind of what me and Sean have talked about, which we, we hope everyone's kind of using those ARDS net protocol, but it's that difference of those, like I said, that patient A and B. Why do they have a different PDF ratio when they're on the same oxygen with the same disease process? And we're making sure we're implementing PEEP, mean airway pressure, other things like that to increase our diffusion of oxygen. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, and yeah, and like, like Hunter, you know, just said, you know, we're, we're just kind of starting to touch on some concepts that we're going to be starting to dive into in later, um, later, uh, uh, broadcasts. Um, the one thing, and this is kind of like the, the transition to our last, uh, last little phase here, right? So th there's a really interesting study where they looked at how do we protect lungs, um, you know, when we're doing ARDS net ventilation, right? And so 
if you look at this, basically what they found is if we're giving patients um, low volume and low pressure, this is what's best for the lungs. We still need to maintain their oxygenation, right? So we're doing these low tidal volume ventilations. We might need to increase their respiratory rate in order to maintain that minute ventilation, like we talked about at the beginning, right, in order to maintain their, their CO2. And this, again, is in that patient who does not have diseased lungs. Um, if we have somebody with obstructive disease or, or anything you know like that, then we need to start manipulating that IE, and we might have to stack that ventilate or the uh, stack the CO2 in order to let, give them um, you know enough in inspiratory time or uh, let them exhale. Um, the next stage is that low volume, right? So we're doing low volume ventilation, maybe six mLs per kilo, five mLs. Uh, hope hope to guys you don't have to go to four mLs. Um, but you're increasing their PEEP in order to maintain their oxygenation. Um, this has been shown to not be as bad for the lungs, but now when you start getting into super high volumes, right, where you're ventilating at 9, 10, 12 mLs per kilo without giving the PEEP, that is when we start doing a lot of damage to the lungs. And you've sure, I'm sure you've all heard about the shearing forces, um, you know, the alveoli, the atelectrotrauma, um, but then there's also barotrauma and volume trauma. And the volume trauma um, is uh, is worse than the barotrauma. And I guess if you really want to take this to, um, you know, kind of the next level, high volumes, zero peep, that would probably be the absolute worst, right? Because now you're, you're not getting any splinting open of those alveoli. You're going to get that shearing trauma plus the, plus the volume trauma. Um, and so this starts to kind of transition into this concept of compliance, which we're going to talk about next week. I just wanted to introduce this, right? We talk about you have to monitor both volume and pressure. If you are volume ventilating, you have to measure or you have to monitor the patient's uh, airway pressures. And likewise, if you are pressure ventilating, you have to monitor the patient's volume, right? And, and, and the way I describe this is, Let's just say for a minute, you know, we're here and we are volume ventilating, right? So we give a patient with healthy lungs a certain volume, right? The volume goes up, but the pressure only goes up a little bit. You can follow an imaginary line down. As that volume goes up higher and higher and higher, now say we're into that 10 or 12 mLs per kilo, you can see that the airway pressures go up exponentially. And now we could potentially be into that range where we are doing lung damage. Okay, on the flip side of that, still um, still healthy lungs, right? We're talking about these very compliant lungs, very healthy lungs. If we are pressure ventilating somebody, we give them a little bit of pressure and we get a lot of volume. Eventually, if we are over pressure, if we're giving them too much ins inspiratory pressure, we reach a point of diminishing returns where all we're doing is increasing the pressure without increasing volume enough and we, do, we start to do damage. And we can take this nice compliant lung and turn it into this really poor compliant basketball style lung um, by overventilating these patients um, for too long, of course. And this is where this ventilator associated lung injury comes in. So the example for the non-compliant lung, right, is these beat, you know, these basketball style lungs is again. We give them a little bit of pressure. We get some. Uh, we get some volume. We give them a little bit more pressure. We get some more volume. But we reach that plateau point where we've reached that diminishing return much quicker. And likewise, you can see if we're volume ventilating that same patient, we give them a little bit of volume, goes up a little bit. The pressure, airway pressures go up a little bit. But again, at some point, we reach that that point of diminishing return where we give them a little bit more volume the pressures just go up exponentially, right? And so when by monitoring both the volume and the pressure when we are ventilating our patients, it's going to give us that ability to tell what's going on in their lungs and, and determine when we've reached this point of, uh, of diminishing returns where we cannot give them any more volume or pressure um, before we're just doing damage, which is perfect for what we're going to be talking about uh, talking about next week. Um, real quick, we talked a lot about the concept of, um, if you if, if you have run, you know, managed ventilators, right, there's this idea where we've got to keep the plateau pressures less than 30. 
We, you know, otherwise we're going to start doing lung damage. And we're starting to see evidence, it's been out for a while, that perhaps the peak inspiratory pressure and the plateau pressures are not quite as um, critical as we once believed for preventing uh, ventilator-associated lung injury. Perhaps this concept of driving pressure is a little bit more uh, important. Um, so what driving pressure is, is the difference between your plateau and your peak. So let's just say, for instance, we're ventilating a patient at whatever volume we've set. We do an inspiratory hold, we check their plateau pressures, and their plateau pressures come back at 25. Perfect. Under normal circumstances, we would say that that's safe for this patient. Except, or, you know, as I have drawn in this example, 20, um, but let's just say, you know, for the sake of argument, you know, 25, but we have our PEEP set at 5. The driving pressure, the difference between those, those two pressures is 20. What the evidence is starting to suggest is that if we have a driving pressure greater than 15, that may be more significant uh, for doing, doing lung injury, ventilator-associated lung injury, than just simply having those higher airway pressures. So the question then becomes, what do you do? Do you increase your PEEP? Do you drop your volumes? We're going to get to that next week when we start talking about compliance and dynamic compliance versus um, static compliance with the respiratory coach. What do you think, Hunter? Do you want me to go back to the driving pressure and talk a little no, bit about that? No, I think, uh, no, I think you're, you're spot on. Um, there's been many studies, guys, that they found, like my partner Sean was saying, this difference in these ARDS patients. And again, we want to reiterate that driving pressure is for ARDS patients. That's where it's been primarily studied. And they found this commonality of the P-plat from the PEEP having this sustained driving pressure that we're talking about. And it's been proven to do better with uh, mortality and morbidity. So um, like Sean said, it's it's uh, been out there. But uh, just a concept uh, for you guys to use on your arts patients. Uh, we're not telling anyone to use it, but just a good concept to keep in your head. And like uh, Sean said, we're going to start using um, – I'll start talking about a lot about pressures coming up with the respiratory coach, and uh, we're really going to dive in. So, anyone that wants to nerd out, come check it out. It's going to be fun. That's all we have for this episode of the podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. I want to invite you to head over to academy.flakerit.com to check out the rest of our courses. And remember, education is good, but excellence through collaboration is much better. Stay safe and live well, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Flakerit Podcast. Bye for now.